You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Within the last hour, we just heard from Governor David Ige in his State of the State Address. Joining me this morning for reaction to that speech, Tom Yamachika, President of the Tax Foundation of Hawaii. Good morning, Tom. Morning, Catherine. Thank you for having me on your show. Yes. Well, were you surprised, <laughs> like I was, that there wasn't much detail on any tax plan? Yeah, there was uh, nothing that I could hear. Um, so the only clues that we have so far are, you know, some statements that their uh, administration personnel made to, to the, uh, uh, the the House and Senate Money Committees in the past. We will. Uh, supposedly get the details later today because the administration package needs to be introduced today. Uh, it hasn't come up on the Capitol website yet, however, so I'm not uh, sure what the details are going to be. But we, we can talk generally about some of the concepts that have been bandied about. Right, and one of them is what, taxing the wealthier residents of the state? Right, so um, what... That would be is that would probably be an income tax increase. We we currently have the second highest uh, income tax rate in the nation at 11 percent. Uh, the, uh, the 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 crown is currently held by California at 13.3. Um, but there are some uh, bills already in the hopper uh, that would give California a run for their money. Uh, there is, for example, a, a bill in the Senate. Uh, that would increase the tax on the uh, people at the 11% bracket now to 16%. Uh, and it's only for six years, but it's still, uh, number one, it's a, it's a very substantial hike, and number two, uh, you don't know what's going to happen at the end of six years. A lot of things start off as temporary uh, and then uh, aren't so, so temporary. Right. And, you know, we always hear the phrase, the devil's in the details. Uh, so we'll see, uh, you know, what the governor is proposing uh, later today. Uh, but what else has been bandied about? Uh, they have been talking about a tax on carbon. And uh, that could be uh, very impactful, especially if you uh, if you drive a car or need to uh, you. Uh, you need to transport things uh, in your business. Uh, right now, we have a, a, a tax called the barrel tax that's imposed at a dollar and five cents per barrel. Uh, the there is one um, measure in the in the hopper uh, that would increase that to twenty three dollars and sixteen cents over the over the next ten years, corresponding to um, a uh, a rate of $80 per metric ton of carbon dioxide emitted. Uh, but $23.16 uh, would translate to like uh, 55, cents a bit, uh, 55 cents a gallon. So uh, you think our gas prices are bad now? Uh, they're going to get worse. Yikes. <laughs> so uh, it, I, I know that uh, we've heard from those who are against a, a carbon tax. They'd rather have a carbon credit, uh, you know, because, you know, theoretically it would be affecting, you know, folks like uh, the, the airline industry as well, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, you you, you got to remember that um, it, it, the so-called carbon tax uh, is not just on carbon. Uh, it's on uh, all forms of energy that are derived from fossil fuels. So uh, if you use propane, if you use coal, uh, if you use uh, any any LP gas, um, uh, liquefied petroleum gas that was you know, that, that was being talked about uh, some years ago, uh, it, it's going to hurt. And what what else is on the table? What else is being floated? Um, we, we we have on our website, uh, you know, the, the current list that's ever expanding on what, what's being proposed. Now we have, you know, uh, maybe 100 different things so far. We typically get 300 tax proposals a session. Um, fortunately, most of them go, go nowhere, but uh, you, you never know in these days. Uh, there's also some talk about a, a sugary beverage tax. So 
uh, and, and this is promoted by health advocates. And, and the way that would work is um, that if you have a sugary beverage, uh, there's going to be a, a surtax on it. Uh, the current proposal in uh, Senate Bill 541 is uh, two cents per fluid ounce. So you have your can of soda there, which I think is 10 cents, uh, I'm sorry, 10, uh, 10 ounces. Uh, that would then uh, be increased by 20 cents if this bill becomes law. Okay. And then uh, we, we have heard, though, these proposals uh, you know, being bandied about in previous sessions, and, and they haven't really gone very far, but maybe this is the session where we'll actually see something take hold. Yeah, again, uh, people need money. Uh, the uh, the state budget needs to be balanced. We can't print money like the feds can. Uh, we don't know if the feds are actually going to send money our way. Uh, we know the Republicans don't want that. The Democrats do. There's a disagreement in Washington. Uh, what is ultimately going to prevail, we don't know. Um, and and we really can't count on you know Uncle Sam bailing us out. We, we, we can hope, but we can't count on it. And talk about the hotel room tax because, you know, we're we're hurting puppies because, you know, we don't have a lot of tourists and uh, not a lot of people are paying that tax. That's right. Uh, there are proposals to increase that tax as well. Uh, there are proposals to uh, allow the counties to surcharge it just like they can surcharge the GET. Uh, there is There are proposals to add... What, what's called green fees on uh, transient accommodations. Um, one proposal calls for the addition of $20 per transient accommodation. Another one calls for $40, $40 uh, none of which is going to matter if we don't get our tourists back. <laughs> yeah, not, not, a, not a very good uh, or not a bright outlook uh, until we get this pandemic uh, under control. Yeah. I, I kind of think that what we really ought to be doing is concentrating on on, on things that will get our economy running again. Uh, most of the, the revenue that government derives is tax revenue, but it, but it comes from business in, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, the GE tax, for example, produces almost half of our general fund budget, uh, and that's a business tax. Um, the, the transit accommodations tax, public service company tax, uh, tobacco tax, liquor tax, they're all taxes on business. And if the businesses aren't going, uh, that tax revenue isn't being produced. So do you think the state ought to be uh, also more focused on controlling our spending? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, again, we have to balance our budget. That means we have to take a look at what comes in as well as what goes out. Uh, if there is you know, fraud, waste, abuse, um, uh, in our in our state go- in our state government, and and I think it's inevitable since some of our departments are just very 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 big. Right. So yeah, we um, can't afford to be uh, uh, hemorrhaging anything at this point. All right. So we'll uh, have to wait and see what the governor's uh, proposals are uh, when he turns them in uh, at some point today. But thanks so much, yeah, John. At some point today. Yeah. Thank thanks. you so much for having me on your show. All right. We have been talking to Tom Yamachika, president of the Tax Foundation of Hawaii. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. (laughs) 
For today's quiz, we want to celebrate the birthday of Robert Burns, the national poet of Scotland. Born in 1759, Burns penned over 300 poems and songs during his short life, including A Red, Red Rose and Auld Lang Syne. A 2009 vote by the Scottish public declared Robert Burns the greatest Scot of all time. Each year on January 25th, Scots around the world celebrate Burns Supper with recitations of Burns' work over a feast of Scottish favorites. Burns Suppers, as they're called, also take place in Hawaii. In the century after Burns' death, many Scotsmen immigrated to Hawaii, and one place in the Hawaiian island chain attracted such a high number of Scots that it became to be nicknamed the Scotch Coast. For today's quiz, we want to know what part of Hawaii earned that nickname, the Scotch Coast, in the 19th century. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities statewide by supporting affordable housing, providing infrastructure, and creating jobs. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. At this very hour, the residents of Kalopapa, the settlement created for Hans's disease patients, are set to receive the first of two shots that will protect them from the COVID-19 coronavirus. The rollout of the vaccine comes just as the community there marked the feast day of St. Mother Marianne Cope on Saturday. Sister Alicia and Sister Barbara Jean spoke with us this morning, excited that they and the staff of the uh, Kalopapa National Historic Park are being offered this added protection during this pandemic. It is a great, you know, opportunity. And, you know, of course, Dr. Wasserman has been working very diligently to get the patient vaccinated. But because he has, you know, 100 vaccines to be given out and there's only right currently in Kalapapa five, you know, residents, we needed to take a look at, okay, so who else can we vaccinate? Both sister and I are up there in age and, you know, we can't really go out and try to get vaccinated in any other area. So we were very, very happy when Dr. Wasserman said that, yes, he's bringing it in. So we're going to be, I think we're going to be having about 50 people vaccinated today. Of course, the patients are first, and then, of course, the healthcare workers that deal directly with the staff, and then um, sister and I, and, of course, father is over the age of 75 also. So wanted to make sure that, you know, we do get um, vaccinated as part of it. And then I believe they've contacted as many of the National Park Service staff and the Department of Health staff who like it so sister and i will be helping out with probably the traffic flow um in it because they're coming up to the bishop home complex using one of the cottages that we have around the corner and just to make sure that everybody follows the one-way path around the whole bishop home complex you'll be playing traffic cops today we're playing traffic cops yes (laughs) (laughs) and you know this comes at a time where you folks have just marked mother mary ann cope's feast day sister barbara jane you want to talk about what the you folks did this weekend it was lower key than usual but very eventful so the first thing i want to say is i want to inject the word chronologically to sister's statement as we're up there in age because our spirits are still pretty vibrant even though our age wouldn't indicate such so in the spirit of saint mary ann we let the superintendent of the national parks know what we were doing and saturday which was the actual feast day we got up early we started making spam musubi in three (laughs) different flavors bacon garlic and portuguese sausage then we, we went to Mass. We had a really nice liturgy with singing. We had the relic of St. Mary Ann in front of the altar. And then after that, uh, we came home and, and we ended up visiting all the people who were in their homes in the settlement and handing out the spam and a little packet 
that he had a hand sanitizer from the, the Order of St. Lazarus, a little prayer card as a memento, and then some cookies and a little candy treat. So very different from what you would normally see. Uh, Sister Alicia, talk about uh, you know what a big event this normally would be. Well, normally the Order of St. Lazarus for the past couple of years has been very, very um, um, supportive of all of the patients here. Not only have they delivered a lot of medical equipment for the care home, um, but um, popcorn machines and um, games, the um, cornhole games and everything. So, you know, they're always here. And on, usually on the Feast of Mother Marianne or Damien, um, they would bring their order in um, from the West Coast, and we would just have a big celebration um, with um, um, liturgy. And then they would bring in a luau and cater it from topside Molokai and um, pay for everything, you know. So this year, and invite all the staff and the patients to go there. So we would at least have about, you know, 70, 80 people gathering together at McBay Hall and just having fun together and, um, of course, eating. Right. And you normally would have a special choir come in, too. Yes, we do. We had the um, St. John Vianney's Choir, which was made up of some of everybody that was from St. John Vianney's who have been coming here for the past 35 years. Um, and eventually some of them went to the Cathedral of Basilica, and we had a couple from the Big Island that would pay their own expense to come here and to add to our liturgy um, services, yes. The feast day then certainly comes, you know, at the start of a big week where the community there then is going to be vaccinated. Um, What are your thoughts, Sister Barbara Jean, just about this time and the significance of, you know, this pandemic and and Kalopapa's history? It's a remarkable continuation of a circle of life. When the first patients came here, they were exiled because of a disease that was not understood. It was a lifetime commitment, so they considered themselves prisoners over here in the peninsula, which is completely three sides surrounded with water, and then one side has, for them, it would be unclimbable cliffs or the poly. So when they first came here, they were exiled, and over time, they the little phrase that is used is, it turned from a prison to a paradise because they were able to form new friendships, find companionship, virtual nourishment. Many of them fell in love, got married, and had children. And so it came, it changed from being a place of exile to being a community of people who looked out for each other. Today, we are here, and the exile is kind of reversed. So we're here, and no one is allowed to come in, and that is to take care of and protect the people who are most vulnerable here, which is the patient. Sister Alicia, you've been there since 1965. How are you looking at this pandemic and this health crisis? Well, it's very interesting. We just had a Damien Marianne Catholic conference, and I did a, a presentation on looking at COVID and looking at the time when we had the pandemic of leprosy here in Hawaii. And although it seems like it's similar, you know, you're talking about, you know, the, the fear that went through everybody's uh, mind, the segregation, people who are dying alone without their families and everything like that. It's, you know, very similar but different in a lot of it. It was racism, there's anger, and you can see that just coming through with this COVID, you know, and everything that was that's happening. You know, the psychological feeling of, of you know, the depression, it's, it's emotionally draining for a lot of people. And, of course, the financial stress of it all, you know. You know, it was very interesting when, you know, they were segregated here, as Sister was saying, in exile. You know, one of the patients told me, you know, this is worse than a prison. And I kind of like looked at him and I said, why? And he says, because in prison, at least you got a chance to be um, paroled. When you came here, there was no parole. We were here for life. You know, and that kind of always puts chills in my spine when I hear that, because that's true, you know, and, and, and hearing that. So, you know, when you take a look at, you know, COVID um, at this point and and whatnot. Mother Marianne, when she came here, she answered the call without knowing what she was doing. But God had given her 
the skills to be able to come here and accept everybody. He had allowed her to open up a hospital in Syracuse, New York, brought in all of the uh, the School of Medicine, who then brought in all of the information about pasture and infection, infection control. And that was in the 1870s. She didn't come here until the 1883. So who would have known that God was already preparing her with all of that knowledge, with all of that grace, with all of that values to come here to Hawaii to take care of those with leprosy? And she didn't realize that she was doing that. And she had not seen people with leprosy until she actually came here in 1883 and went to the Kaka'aka receiving station. She and the sisters saw people with leprosy for the first time. So it's fitting that uh, we honor her memory and her sacrifice and contribution to uh, the settlement uh, at this time as, as you folks start to get the vaccines today. You know, your email ends with, uh, a line, I think life is all too short to spend any part of it in worry and anxiety. Yes, those are Mother Mary Ann's words. You know, I know there was a concern because you had the one positive case there. Yeah, I mean, thank goodness for the Department of Health and, you know, some of their um, protocols because it is important to keep everybody in the settlement safe. We have been talking to Sister Alicia and Sister Barbara Jean, two of the last nuns serving at the Kalopapa Settlement. They and the residents and staff of the National Park Service and the State Health Department are getting their COVID vaccines today. Support for HPR comes from Compassion and Choices, celebrating the second anniversary of the Our Care, Our Choice Act, allowing terminally ill adults to request a prescription for medical aid in dying. CompassionandChoices.org slash Hawaii. After damaging his vocal cords trying to be a rock singer, New Yorker staff writer John Colapinto became fascinated with the human voice. On the next Fresh Air, he talks about how the voice evolved, how babies learn to vocalize our words so quickly, and why accents we pick up as kids are hard to shake. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Join us on Saturday, January 30th for a virtual concert with Ron Artis II from his home in Oregon. From a large musical family, Artis has a sound all his own, blending Delta blues, gospel, northern soul, and R&B. The Oahu native now lives in Portland, but always looks for chances to connect with his fans in his island home. Reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. With vaccination efforts underway across Hawaii and the nation, we wanted to revisit a local connection to Pfizer's efforts to develop their COVID-19 vaccine. The East-West Medical Research Institute in Honolulu was one of an overall 100 sites worldwide that participated in early vaccine trials and research. According to lead researcher Dr. David Fitzpatrick, the Hawaii site had the distinction of being one of the most community-involved trials across the board. He spoke with the Conversations' Harrison Patino about the research today. We had thousands of people uh, in Hawaii volunteer to be part of this project. Um, my team worked extremely long hours uh, to try and get as many people in as possible. Um, we ended up with 565 people uh, randomized into the study. Um, actually, uh, Hawaii was in the top 10 sites out of 152 world, worldwide for participation, uh, which I think is a tribute to the volunteerism uh, of people in Hawaii. Um, the results of the study were better than we could have ever hoped with 95% efficacy of the uh, BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine. Um, we saw no serious side effects. Um, the only real issue that has come up since 20 million, uh, yeah, 20 million, no, I think, yeah, there's been about 20 million people immunized with either Pfizer or 
um, Moderna is about one in 100,000 people getting the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna's newest, so we don't have as good a data, have uh, anaphylactic reactions. And these are usually people with a history of allergies, uh, but they've all recovered. Um, so other than that, um, this is a very well-tolerated uh, vaccine. Um, and um, yeah, actually we've had, you know, I have some young science uh, majors who work for me on this project and some of them uh, have actually decided to change career plans and go into medicine as a result of being involved in the project. Now. Your team's research was a small part, but a significant part of a massive undertaking that occurred across the country and indeed across the world. What were some of the biggest takeaways from the research conducted here locally by your team? Well, I think what we had um, was typical of what was seen worldwide. So it's a very, a very effective vaccine. Um, side effects are usually mild. Um, they're actually milder if you're in the 55 and over age group. Um, Side effects that would make you not want to go to work the next day occurred only in one in six people, and that was usually the younger age group. Um, so that's the, those are the major takeaways. Well, now that vaccine distribution is underway in the United States, what's next for you and your team at East West Research? I'm assuming there is still plenty of follow-up research to be done. You're not just going to be kicking your feet up and watching the vaccine being distributed across the country. <laughs> yeah, far, far from it. We're extremely busy. Um, so the next thing is we're looking at uh, data to see. So what, what the research has shown so far is that this vaccine is 95% effective at preventing symptomatic disease. What we don't know is does it prevent asymptomatic infection, which is extremely important because that could lead uh, to spread of the virus. Um, so it's unlikely that it does, but we haven't established that. So we're actually uh, currently working on establishing uh, that. Uh, the next thing that we're looking at is how long does the immunity last for? Uh, so that's why this is initially a two-year project, not just we're not done with it. Uh, so we have to continue to track whether people who've been immunized um, get COVID. Uh, and we're also uh, measuring their antibody levels as time goes on. Now, as we spoke about months before, the skepticism surrounding the various COVID vaccines has not dissipated, and in some cases, that doubt has really strengthened. What are your thoughts on the matter of this growing or, or remaining skepticism over vaccines? Yeah, actually, I saw some encouraging polling data today that 17, I think something like 79% of Americans plan to get the vaccine. Um, there's more, especially amongst older age groups, um, younger age groups, it was felt that it was more apathy than antipathy towards the vaccine. So I think attitudes are changing. For people who are on the fence about whether to get the vaccine, I, I explained to them that this, um, the pandemic will end, maybe we'll need almost 90% or more people to be immunized to end the pandemic, especially with new, much more infectious variants coming on the scene. Um, but even if the pandemic ends and you haven't been immunized, COVID's not going away. You can still catch COVID. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a significant mortality rate, but there's a much higher morbidity rate. And a lot of people have significant symptoms for a long time after and may have permanent organ damage, which could change their, their life project, um, the projection of their, the, or the trajectory of their life, or trajectory of their life, sorry. Um, so I, I think you need to sit down and ask yourself, what is uh, life going to be like if you don't take the vaccine? Are you, are you an older person who's just going to stay home to stop getting COVID and not go and see your grandkids anymore? Uh, and if you're a younger person, are you going to risk having one of these serious long-term side effects? Now, a common line of logic for people in younger generations, and you mentioned that apathy versus antipathy, but a common line of logic there seems to be that, well, even if I do get COVID, I'm younger, so it won't affect me as significantly as it will affect older generations or people with pre-existing conditions that would complicate COVID or expound that morbidity factor. What would you say to that kind of person who 
has more of an apathy to the vaccine because the perceived side effects and the perceived consequences would be lesser because of their age or their health. Yeah, I, I would say that the chances of dying um, from COVID if you're a healthy young person are low, uh, but you could still suffer long-term health consequences. Um, and especially if you're overweight, for instance, you are at in increased risk of dying. Um, my own daughter had a 28-year-old uh, work uh, colleague who um, died from COVID, and her only uh, coexisting condition was being overweight. So it's, it's, there's still a risk that you could get a serious problem, and... Um, you could get a long-term health problem. There are a significant number of people who have at least one residual symptom of uh, COVID six months after their acute illness. Now, you mentioned this project. It's, it's a work in progress. This isn't a finished process by any means. And I think to speak nothing of the skepticism of scientific consensus, it seems like a lot of people aren't sure about the vaccine because it is a work in progress and they are skeptical of taking something which to them, there is a perceived rush. They might think that, you know, this vaccine has come along a lot quicker than other vaccines comparatively. What do you say to the people out there who are skeptical of that aspect of the vaccine? Well, this vaccine was um, developed very rapidly, not because shortcuts were taken, but because an enormous number of resources were put into the development. And so normally we take one step, prove something, move on to the second step, prove something and move on to the next step. But in this case, um, billions of dollars were put into uh, taking the risk that we would do, um, taking the financial risk, um, that the vaccine wouldn't work out. Normally, pharmaceutical companies aren't going to put billions of dollars uh, in early on and take a risk that something wouldn't work out. So um, every uh, appropriate step was taken to ensure the safety of this vaccine. And um, for those who are concerned, most historically, m most long-term side effects of vaccines are seen in the first six weeks. And that's why the FDA waited until there was two months of data on the vaccines that they approved for emergency use. Now, not to go into much of the political aspect of here, but we have a new administration coming into the country that has sort of reaffirmed a coalition with scientific consensus. For you personally, what's your hope for the country now that COVID-19 vaccines are becoming available? And it seems like federally there's more of an affirmed stance to stand with science. Well, well my hope is that they get the vaccine out to people. Um, it seems like there are a number of logistical problems, uh, and I would hope they solve that so that the uh, vaccine that's being produced can be rapidly distributed distributed to people to um, vaccinate them. That was Dr. David Fitzpatrick, lead researcher at East West Medical Research Institute, talking with the conversations Harrison Patino. Uh, they were chatting about the findings during the research phase of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about an innovative health center on Kauai that is struggling to survive. Alan Parikini joins us from the Garden Isle this morning uh, for our reality check. Good morning, Alan. Hi, Catherine. Long time no chat. Yes, it has been. <laughs> so tell us this this uh, new medical facility. I mean, it's it's a, a a model, a real pioneer, isn't it? It's a nationally unique model, uh, and it's predicated on the notion that. Uh, large urban uh, emergency medicine facilities uh, are best at keeping their people up to speed in terms of training and experience, and that rural communities like Kauai don't have those resources readily available to them. So uh, a longtime uh, visitor from Salt Lake City, Dr. Ted Kimball, had the idea to start Makana Urgent Care, and the medical staff and much of the nursing and physician assistant staff flies in here uh, every uh, two to four weeks from Salt Lake. Uh, they, 
They work in a purpose-built building in Princeville where, with some local uh, full-time residents, of x-ray technicians, physicians' assistants, some of the RNs, and they blend together in a setting in which the medical, the MDs and, and RNs from Salt Lake bring with them the currency and uh, uh, depth of knowledge of a very large urban medical center. Uh, and, of course, they get the benefit of being on Kauai for a few weeks at a time, which was certainly popular with the teenage sons of one of the RNs who came <laughs> over uh, the first time. Uh, so it's it's very, very strange, not strange, but a very unusual and unique way to provide uh, health care or urgent care services in a very rural, isolated environment. They, of course, uh, the model is built around serving local residents, but like any business on Kauai, you can't uh, survive without tourists uh, and who make up a substantial amount of their patient load. So when COVID hit and tourism collapsed, uh, the same thing happened to them that happened to uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of businesses here on island, and they had to, uh, to, to cut back, cut back their operating hours. Uh, they used to close at 10 p.m. Now they close at 5. They don't have x-ray services one day a week. But they've kept the doors open, uh, and they're, they, they vowed not to cut any further than that. And it's, it's a uh, resource, particularly for people on the North Shore, for whom any kind of urgent medical situation right now requires a drive pretty much all the way into Lihui, 30 miles away. Yes, and, you know, we've done uh, stories recently about, uh, you know, we have this doctor shortage uh, across the state. And, you know, for rural areas, boy, this is a godsend. It's it's a very clever uh, idea, and it's it's it was Kimball's concept, and it has something in it for everybody. It's got something in it for people who live here, something in it for uh, for visitors, and certainly something in it that's desirable for uh, people who live full time in Salt Lake City, uh, particularly in the winter, and get to escape that for a few weeks at a time. Yeah. So this place has been around for three years. You know, uh, hopefully this is just a rough patch, and they and they stick it out. I, I think they will. They they added a dermatology practice, which was not part of the original plan, but uh, given the, the need for dermatology uh, among full-time residents of Kauai, uh, it's been a, a real game-changer for them. It's been a re- revenue source, uh, and it fills a need in the community that was just not being met at the time. So. Uh, and they also have a room that they're they're more than willing to purpose dedicate to COVID vaccination. Uh, so I think they're going to make it. Uh, it's it's been a struggle, and they uh, they have had the same kinds of challenges that uh, other businesses have. Kimball uh, recognizes how unique healthcare and urgent care is to a community like ours, and I think he's committed to doing what he's doing. Well, it'll be interesting to see if. Uh uh, other communities pick up this model. Uh, we sure could use some of that expertise in those rural areas. It would be a very interesting thing to see this model tested elsewhere. Uh, I think it's clear that the, it would work best where the community is a tourist destination community, but that would apply pretty much anywhere here in this state. Well, I, I have to chuckle, I have to smile, because I've been enjoying the wind chimes uh, as we've been having this conversation. But hopefully the weather holds out on your island, because we've got dark gray skies here on Oahu. No, we, we, we have that, too, and it's raining right now. Okay, all right. We'll stay dry. Okay, thanks a lot. That was Honolulu Civil Beat's Aaron Parikini with today's Reality Check. Head to civilbeat.org to read his story. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Today, astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence uh, for an update about the Cassini mission. Here's your Monday Stargazer.
Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny and very troubled planet. And as usual, we're thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips to guide us through it, and we've got him on the line. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have in store for us this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for the planet Mars, which is in the southeast. It will be fully visible throughout the night till it sets at around midnight in the west. The moon this week is passing through its full phase, and so stargazing for faint objects is going to be very challenging indeed. And I understand this week you've got an update on the Cassini mission. Yeah, the Cassini mission to explore Saturn and its moons, which ended in 2017 after an historic 19-year run. During this time, the spacecraft gathered immense amounts of data that is still being analyzed today. During a recent analysis of data of Saturn's largest moon, Titan, planetary scientists have been able to get an idea of just how deep the seas are on this distant moon. And let's start with the seas on Titan. As I understand it, they're not so much water, more like gasoline? That's correct. The bodies of liquid on Titan's surface are made up of hydrocarbons, like methane. And they are the same hydrocarbons that we find in things like liquid propane and gasoline here on the Earth. And the reason they're liquid is because of the uh, freezing temperatures and the pressure there. Exactly. And for years, their actual physical properties were a mystery. But now planetary scientists have been able to estimate that some of these bodies of liquid are up to 1,000 feet deep. And how do they figure something like that out, Chris? Well, it was data from Cassini's radar instruments that provided us with this new insight into Titan. Even though the instruments are long gone when Cassini plummeted into Saturn's atmosphere at the end of its mission. And explain how using historic data in science isn't really new. It's something that happens quite frequently. Yeah, and in astronomy specifically, we generate vastly more data than can be analyzed in real time or even by all the astronomers on Earth. It's not uncommon for discoveries like this to be made years after a mission or an observation has concluded. In fact, I suspect many more discoveries from Cassini in the years to come. It's Christopher Phillips and another exciting Stargazer report. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. For today's Backyard Quiz, we wanted to know what part of Hawaii earned the nickname the Scotch Coast in the 19th century. Though Scotsmen immigrated throughout the Kingdom of Hawaii, one region in particular captured their hearts. In letters and correspondence, Scotsmen who settled on the Hamakua coast on Hawaii Island often noted that the cool climate and lush greenery reminded them of their native Scotland. Towards the end of the century, many graduates of the University of Aberdeen, Scotland's College of Agriculture, came to Hamakua to oversee sugar plantations. A Los Angeles Times article reported that at the height of production, there were as many as 26 sugar plantations on the Hamakua coast most of which were managed by Scotsmen. And congratulations to our winner, Michelle Schwengel of Mililani. You got it right. We had lots of listeners uh, who knew the answer, but you had the fastest fingers. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. is Hawaii's largest industry, but that doesn't mean everyone is happy with it. A resident sentiment survey released by the Hawaii Tourism Authority in November found that 65% of respondents felt that people from outside the state should not visit Hawaii. Even prior to the pandemic, one of the biggest issues facing the industry was over-tourism. The term, coined by travel media company Skift, means that a destination's visitor infrastructure has been mismanaged without regard to the economic, environmental, and sociocultural effects 
to the local population. With Hawaii tourism in a recession, many have suggested now is the time to rethink the industry. Sean D. is the executive vice president and chief marketing officer at Outrigger Hotels and Resorts and a former HTA board member. He spoke with the Conversations' Jason Ubai about what the company is doing to prepare for when tourists return en masse. Clearly, it's top of mind for for us, for you know, industry leadership, for HTA and John DeFree, the new HTA leader. You know, he's the first uh, Native Hawaiian to actually run that organization. I think it was a great choice. Um, you know, he's, he's very connected, very collaborative, working with us on campaigns and programs. Uh, so there's a lot going on. There, there's a new strategic plan that was actually adopted, 2000. I want to say late 18, early 19 with sustainable tourism really as the driving force. You know, they created new pillars with a focus on, you know, Hawaiian culture, uh, natural resources, community. So for the first time, you know, a priority of HTA was really community engagement. Um, and I was talking to someone about it the other day and said, well, does it really matter? I said, well, it starts with a plan. <laughs> so we, there is a plan that's published. You know, HTA is a state agency, so it's approved by the ledge, right? So Senator Wakai and Rep. Anishi worked on the plan um, with HTA. I was on the board, actually, at the time. And that's important. That was a big shift, a pivot, if you will, from a focus just on the economic, you know, benefits of tourism, and which at, at times can lead to a focus on the numbers as opposed to, you know, quality of the visitor, who do we want to attract here, what are they going to do when they're here, et cetera. So that plan is sort of the anchor that, that sort of drives the whole program. It drives HTA, which in turn then drives through its major market contractors and starts to then spread the word. And so it's manifested itself in a campaign that was launched in October. Um, right now it's, it's uh, primarily focused on the West Coast um, of the U.S., where obviously people can travel from and where a big base of our visitors come from. And it's called the Malama Campaign, meaning in Hawaiian, to take care of. So the whole essence of the campaign is, hey, we need you to take care of Hawaii, and Hawaii will take care of you. So Malama Hawaii, and Hawaii will Malama you. And it has PR elements to it, social media, paid media, et cetera. It's a beautiful campaign, as always, from HVCB. But it has, I think, more of a message, um, and a message about responsibility, and obviously focused on uh, what they call mindful travelers. So travelers here who are going to do the right thing, you know, who are not going to, you know, put the wrong sunscreen on and they're not going to go out and trample on the reefs, et cetera. And it seems like a small thing, but you know, it, I believe it's going to make a difference. The other powerful thing about the campaign is it recognizes that it's not just visitors that we want to speak to as an industry. We want to speak to residents. And I make the point often, and I think it can be lost sometimes in the, in the interviews that are done, is all of us who are in the hospitality industry, all of us here at Outrigger, you know, while we're in the visitor in industry, we're residents. You know, we've lived here for many years. You know, many of us, you know, our whole lives, we raise our families here, we go to school here, we, you know, go to restaurants here, we work here, et cetera. So we are residents. So resident sentiment is about us as well, and we care a lot about the place. And this campaign, I think, is a way to connect, I think, residents and visitors more directly. Our program, our contribution to the Malama campaign, we joined forces with about 65, I think the the number now is up to 68 from what uh, someone told me the other day. But 68 different hotel companies have joined the program. And if you, while you're on your trip as a visitor, if you participate in the program and basically sign in and do some sort of volunteer work or be part of a eco-learning exercise or whatever it may be, it's, it's different by hotel. But if you're part of the Malama campaign, we give you an extra night. So we give you a free night. So if you stay two nights, you join the Malama program without rigor, you sign up for it, we'll give you that third night free. And so different hoteliers have different incentives, but generally it's tied to a third night free. So you extend your stay for no cost. Uh, and our program is connected with uh, John Morgan and his family team up at Kulo Ranch. So you can go up to the ranch, do a two-hour eco-tour, you learn about you know, reef-friendly sunscreen, you learn about how the you know, the uplands and the and pollution has an impact on the lowlands, how that has an impact on the reefs. They do coral uh, reef monitoring up there. So a whole bunch of education and ecotourism tours that are, are part of their effort. Um, so we're, we're proud of that. So, you know, it's a small step. Um, I think the work they're doing at Hanama Bay is another good example of what, of what we can do sort of as a community. So higher impact fees for visitors, limited hours, limited, limited number of people that are attending. And I mean, that, that's been a good case study I think just overall for years, and now I think they're they're taking it to the to the next level. So, I think that's a positive step. Another issue that I think 
interestingly, has been sort of put in check for a while is I'm a firm believer, and granted I'm a hotelier, but a firm believer that most of our over-tourism issues and resident sentiment issues were driven by just an explosion of illegal vacation units. So historically, most of the people that would stay here are going to stay in Coalina or in Waikiki, a little bit of interaction with the neighborhoods, but frankly not a lot. But when Airbnb just exploded, I mean, you're talking about 15 to 20,000 units in the course of probably two to three years were spun up and then rented out. You have visitors everywhere. They're in every part of the island. They're unchecked. You know, they're in places that, frankly, they're not permitted to be. And I think that that created a lot of issues. We obviously don't have that issue now. Um, and I'm hopeful as tourism returns here that we're going to follow the rules and we're going to keep Airbnb in check and they're only going to be able to rent legal units. And I think that that's going to have a real positive impact on, uh, on resident sentiment and on the over-tourism issues that, uh, that were reported. That was Shandi of Outrigger Hotels and Resorts discussing over tourism and resident sentiment about visitors. Full disclosure, Outrigger Hotels is an underwriter of Hawaii Public Radio. anyone who has ever had a surgery, one of the biggest fears is what to do about pain control. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk about the role of certified nurse anesthetists and how they are an essential member of the healthcare team, both in the operating room and throughout the hospital. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. That is it for today. Tomorrow, we talk about Oahu's North Shore town of Wailua. It's part of our ongoing relationship with the Oral History Center at the University of Hawaii. It's a call-in show. Do you have a Wailua story about sugar or pineapple you want to share with us? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Katherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Thank you.